morning. One quick bit of housekeeping. Um, just from last week, uh, it was brought to my attention that I could have been confusing in my introduction to last week's sermon when I said, pray for me so that you can understand me. <laughs> the prayer is not that you're, you need a greater ability to understand my brilliant mind, but rather... I need the ability to uh, articulate uh, in an understandable and clear manner. And, and Paul also, uh, you know, asked for the same prayer that we would be clear in our preaching as we should be. So, so that would, that's what that was. So if I offended you because you took it the other way, I'm sorry. I just wanted to clear that up. And uh, yes, pray, pray for my preaching, not as much for your understanding. Okay. <laughs> I was born this way. Genesis 8, 20 through 22. Entitled, I was born this way. I'm just going to spend a, some time this morning in these verses here. You can read them along with me. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. Never again will I destroy all the living creatures as I have done, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Uh, Heavenly Father, God, as we uh, conclude chapter 8 today, um, God, we see that, that, that while our circumstances, our situations in life uh, that, that we are given, even given by you, even our trials, our sufferings, our, our financial blessings, or lack thereof, if you will. Though we aren't equal to one another in that, there is a great equalizer that we see in your word, and that we're all born with a sinful nature, inclined to sin, that we're all turned from you, and that's the condition of our heart. So that none of us may boast, none of us may say that you chose us because we were unlike the man or the woman next to me. Thank me. Thank you, Lord, for not making me a sinner such as them. And God, you tell us here that we are. This isn't the only place in your word. It's one of the places where we find out and there's something wrong with us. There's something that needs fixed. And Lord, that is a work that only you are able to do. And God, I pray that you give us clarity and understanding in that this morning, not just for a, a head knowledge or awareness of that condition, but so that it would drive us to our knees and plead mercy before the cross of Christ, to ask for forgiveness and 
to believe that he forgives those who ask. So Lord, we pray uh, for your blessing this morning in the preaching of your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Are humans inherently evil or are they inherently good? This is an ancient question that the church has debated over many centuries. We weren't the first to ask that question, but per church age, if you will, we, we do have one of the first well-known debates. The debate began with a man named Pelagius challenging a prayer by Augustine. And in Augustine's prayer, it relied completely on the grace of God. Augustine's prayer didn't just rely on the grace of God for salvation. It also said that, that we must rely on the grace of God for everything, including even the works that we do, the good works that we do. And no matter what it is, salvation, works, uh, what job we're supposed to have per se, that we are dependent on God's grace for all of it. Uh, R.C. Sproul wrote a very uh, uh, insightful article regarding this. He said, Pelagius argued if a man was given a responsibility by God, then he surely would be given the ability to carry it out. And from this arose the debate about the freedom of the will. Now, Augustine, on the other hand, stated that the fall of Adam corrupted the will of man so entirely that man, left to his own device, was unable to incline himself to God. So in other words, every human born from Adam is born with the propensity to sin. Now, just for clarification, Augustine did not deny that fallen man still has a will. And that the will is still capable of making choices. What he argued then was that, that, that fallen man, yes, still has a free will, but it has lost its moral liberty. Which means the, the state of original sin leaves us in the wretched condition of being unable to refrain from sinning. We're still able to choose what we desire, but our desires remain chained to our evil impulses. So therefore, Augustine argued that the, the freedom that remains in the will will still always lead to sin. Pelagius, on the other hand, argued that man was not affected by the fall and... Humans born from Adam were as free as Adam even prior to the fall, which means humans then would be born inherently good, even able to live completely sinless lives. And to Pelagius, that was actually attainable, a sinless life without the grace of God needed, without needing the grace of God. Now, does the Bible teach that humans are inherently good? Or does it teach we are born with an inclination to do evil? I, 
I agree with Augustine. In fact, so, so did church history, because in the 5th century, early in the 5th century, Pelagius was actually condemned as a heretic and excommunicated from the church. But with that said, that the goal of a, of a sermon, right, we, we don't want to fall under the same uh, sin as the Corinthians, and one follows Peter, one follows Paul, one follows Augustine, one follows Pelagius. The goal is not to get anyone to side with Augustine, rather I hope to show from the scriptures that every individual who is born is born with a condition that they're unable to do anything about on their own. So ironically, that reality, the the inability to do anything about that condition, we're born with that condition and can do nothing about it, ironically, that reality actually supports the the man-made ideology from the culture around us who says, I was born this way. Yes, you were. Yes, you were. But that awareness is meant for us to recognize and meant for them to recognize our desperate need for Christ. So in other words, when we see that... uh, in verse 21, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, it isn't meant for us to say, well, I was born this way, therefore I'm just going to live in this sin. Understanding that there's a condition we can do nothing about is supposed to drive us to Christ and make us realize our desperate need for a Savior. In order to, <laughs> to rescue us from our inherent nature, and not just human nature, but sinful nature, our flesh, in order to be delivered from that, we all require God's divine intervention. And that is a work initiated and completed by the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The gospel is Trinitarian. So, point number one, you must be born again. I won't mention which child I'm referring to in my family, but whenever one of them disobeys, a lot of times when they disobey, they've, they've started asking, why am I doing this? I don't, I don't understand why I'm doing this. Why, why do I keep sinning? It's a very profound awareness. Because in it, they're, 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 they're relating to Romans 7 and the struggle Paul's referring to about doing even what he doesn't desire to do. It's confusing, but we'll, we'll read it. Romans seven fifteen. For I do not understand what I am doing, Paul says. Because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law, that it is good. So now I'm no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me, (laughs) that is, in my flesh, are humans inherently good. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there's no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. 
my child, <laughs> what they're experiencing is, is, is this exact same thing, this awareness that they have. And, and that's what God, God is telling us here in Genesis 8 about the condition that we all inherit from Adam, which is our hearts are inclined to do evil even from childhood. The diagnosis to that problem is what the church fathers like Augustine referred to as original sin. Original sin is not referring to the first sin in Eden, rather the effects from it. Calvin defines original sin as (coughs) hereditary depravity and corruption of our nature that is diffused into all parts of the soul. The, heter- the hereditary depravity he refers to is that's what we receive from Adam, right? That's the sinful nature, or as Calvin illustrates, as, as he goes further to discuss original sin, he says, we are rotten branches who have come forth from a rotten root. That'll put some pep in your step on a Sunday morning. Now, I want to guard against what I think may be common for some when we talk about humanity being totally depraved. First off, I want to address the misunderstanding about total depravity in itself, which is the idea... And this is the misunderstanding, the idea that because humans are born with a corrupt nature or with the sin nature that is always inclined to sin, they're always going to choose to do the most evil act. That that is not what total depravity teaches. For even as Jesus says in Matthew 7, what does he say? Even evil fathers give their children good gifts. So it is, not, it is not saying we will always make the most evil choice that we possibly can. That's not what total depravity teaches. Instead, what it actually teaches is because humans are affected by the fall from that original sin, in every which way imaginable, our will is in bondage so that we will always choose what we desire most. But because our will is in bondage to sin, we will never choose God, nor will we want what he desires most. People do make decisions. They make choices that have an external appearance of righteousness. Just just look at all the virtues signaling over social media. Okay, look at all the good I do. So, yes. At times, it appears people have righteousness, but but yet, the inward choice to do so, total depravity says, is actually motivated by our sin nature. Now, the, the, the caveat is this goes for those who are not abiding in Christ, okay? I also probably just need to put in a disclaimer that I, I know there's times when, when some, when Christians may wonder, uh, yeah, do we emphasize on sin too much? I thought about that. I thought about that this past week. 
talk about too much from the pulpit? Do we? Should we emphasize on sin? I couldn't help recall a shooting that took place a few weeks ago at a mega church in Houston. The church is known for preaching a prosperity gospel, not the true gospel, and, and not just known. I, I've heard the preacher interviewed, and he said that he won't preach about sin or hell. They may not have to take up the entire sermon, but they do have to be told. They do have to be discussed. I mean, the greater our sin, the greater the Savior. Now, amazingly, nobody died in the shooting uh, except for the shooter. There were two people who were wounded, though. And I thought to myself that when I was thinking about these two people who were wounded, what if one of them had died? Right? And I thought them about them standing there before the throne of judgment. And, and at that point, as they were standing before the presence of God, waiting for him to declare innocent or guilty, do you think that person gives a rip about the sermons that, that, that focused on how wonderful they were as a human being and how much God wants to enrich your life with financial prosperity and material possessions? Would that matter at all? Standing before the throne of God... Or do you think they would have had preferred someone to remind them of their condition and their desperate need for Christ? I'd venture to say the latter. Now, secondly, uh, a thing I want to address is when, when, when people hear the sinful condition of the human heart, and, and the way that we talk about total depravity and original sin and just, just how absolutely wretched we are. I mean, as Calvin says, rotten branches from a rotten, rotten root. There's a tendency to think that, that that strips anything desirable, commendable, lovable, etc. Uh, about themselves or about people they care for and, and for that matter uh, for humanity. They, they wonder why others can't see the good in humanity like they do. Now, I've been wrestling with that a lot this week, too. Especially the question, is there anything about humanity that is even worth commending? And, and, and I conclude, yes. Yes, there is. And so, so I do want to vindicate those who do see something good in humanity... But I want to suggest what is praiseworthy about humans is not a moral commendation. And I, and I think that's where the confusion comes from because people tend to think because they see worth and value in humanity, humans must, even if they're not inherently good, they must, they must have some goodness in them. Something worth mentioning But I want to suggest that the goodness seen in humanity doesn't, it's, it, it's, it's not revealed by our, our moral character. Rather, the goodness that we see actually extends from the realization 
and awareness that humans were created in the image of God. So in other words, there is something about humans that's worth getting excited over. But that's that the worth of every human who has been born has also been created in the image of God. There's value in that. Nothing else created was made in the image of God, not even angels. But our worth, it's not found in our moral compass, at least not from birth, because none of us begins life with a moral compass directed toward God. If, you, if you've ever seen Pirates of the Caribbean, one of the seven they made, um, with Johnny Depp, you'll remember, hopefully you can remember, he, he carries a compass that doesn't point north, right? That's somewhat comparable to our moral compass that we're born with. None of us, uh, none of our compasses point toward God, right? That the Bible's quite clear in explaining that as a reality, which, which, which is that humans in themselves, or rather, what the Bible makes clear, it's not that humans in, in themselves uh, are worthless. Rather, what the Bible makes clear is that none of us are worthy. None is righteous, no, not one. Romans 3, no one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Are humans inherently good? Not according to Romans 3. According to Romans 3, none of us seek God. All of us turn away from God. We're just worthless, and we do no good, not a single one of us. That's the reality of total depravity. That's the reality of original sin. That's the consequence that followed one sin from the, Adam, uh, from the Garden of Eden when Adam sinned. And that corrupted our nature. The application to that reality should be, it should lead us to Christ to plead for mercy. That's when we realize that, wow, okay, I feel like I'm a good person inside. What do you say, God? Well, you're not righteous. You don't understand. You don't seek God. Not a single one of you. And you're like, whoa. Well, then what do I do? What do I do about that, God? Well, David. You do what David does in Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God. You plead. Be gracious to me according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, Blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt. Cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion. And my sin is always before me. 
against you. You alone, God, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. Oops. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Look at that last verse. I was guilty when I was born, and I was sinful when my mother conceived me. David recognizes his inherent condition, right? As he's pleading to God to wash away my guilt, cleanse me from my sin. I was born this way. I mean, as, as, as I thought about this verse, this passage in Psalm 51 this past week, I actually found it quite fascinating that it's David, as, as far as I know, who's the first one to coin the phrase, I was born this way. Yeah. And that, now, of course, he doesn't put a positive spin on it, as our culture does, yeah, nor does he use it as an excuse to vindicate his sinful actions with no accountability for them. No, no, no. Da- David's plea is an utter acknowledgment. That from the very start, every human is born with a condition, and that condition makes them in opposition to their creator. The world around us has taken in that reality that they were born this way, and and they use it for justification for their sin. They even find pride in their identity that they were born that way. They even justify themselves by even just (laughs) taking this truth and speaking it back to God or making an accusation. Well, God, you made me this way. No, no, God did not make us this way. We were born this way. And of course, that is why Jesus said, you must be reborn you must be born again now of course as as we know that'll take a miracle to happen that's our second point (coughs) Matthew 19 25 and 26 Jesus says "Well, well Matthew says, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? That's a good question. Jesus looked up at them and said, with man, this is impossible. Good luck. Good luck doing this on your own. But with God, all things are possible. I think he means it'll take a miracle to save a sinner. I remember a man uh, I worked with who once told me, it was kind of cute, he says, Timothy, I I think I want to give this God thing a try. (laughs) And then he told me, but there's just one sin that I can't resist, that I don't want to give up. And, and, And I believed him. And when he thought that there was no solution able to do anything about that desire. 
that when a person tells us they cannot change who they are, they're not mistaken. We should never underestimate the grip that sin has on a person's will. Because that bondage is absolute. And some people may be more than willing to accept the fact that they're committing a sin against God. But that awareness alone, it's not enough to, to prevent them from acting on their desires. So I may know this is a sin, but I still have a desire to do it. Why? Because they're slaves. They're slaves to sin. They're enslaved to the bondage of their will. Until someone comes along and sets them free, they're going to continue to act upon those desires. Now I can hear the objection. When I say they'll continue to act upon those desires and someone says, but I've seen people choose to stop acting on their immoral desires without God's help. Me too. I've seen alcoholics become sober without any dependence on God whatsoever. None. Zilch. But I want to suggest that actually doesn't debunk the doctrine of total depravity. It actually supports it. Because remember, what total depravity doesn't teach is that a person, or, or rather, what total depravity does teach is that a person will always choose what they want most. It's not that they'll make the most evil, wicked, sinful decision possible. It's that they will always choose whatever they desire most. And so when a person stops an immoral act, stops drinking as a drunkard, it isn't because their will is not in bondage any longer. It is because the desire to stop is greater than the desire to continue. I think it actually supports the doctrine. Either way, wherever you land on that, whether or not we choose to stop doing something immoral, I mean, it bears no significance on, on, on the reality that until, until the Lord does a work in our heart, what we desire most is never going to be God. We may want some form of religion. Right? We may even desire a relationship with God on our terms, but we will be far off from longing with affection to love God as God defines love. In order for that to happen, it's, it's going to take a divine work from God. Or, as the second point says, it'll take a miracle. For us in Christ, that's exactly what happened. So, somehow in our hopeless state, a, a, a miracle took place. Because we who wanted nothing to do with God all of a sudden had deep affections for him. <laughs> we who wanted nothing to do with the light 
wanted everything to do with the darkness. One day after our profession of faith, all of a sudden wanted everything to do with the light and nothing to do with the darkness. What happened? The Bible refers to what happened as regeneration, the rebirth. We've been reborn. Regeneration is it's the moment that the Spirit of God removes that heart of stone and replaces it with the heart of flesh. And when that happens, when that, when that rock is removed, the miracle takes place. So does faith in God's Son. And the work of the Spirit in, in our rebirth, it, it should not go unnoticed. Because without Him raising us from the dead, spiritually speaking, we would still be enslaved to rejecting the Son of God. And without the Spirit convincing our hearts that Jesus is greater than our sin, we would still be enslaved to it. So one of the signs of true rebirth is that Jesus appears in our hearts greater than sin, right? It doesn't only happen to pastors. It doesn't only happen to deacons. It doesn't only happen to people who have gone 20, 30, 40 years of church. That happens for those who are in Christ Jesus. The old has passed and the new has come. That happens in everyone who is reborn. course, then we have a battle with our flesh, right? But the, the point of, of not letting the work of the Spirit go unnoticed is that we, not, not only can we not boast in our efforts to be forgiven by Christ, but, but, but neither can we boast in our efforts even to believe. <laughs> have you considered that? Why did you believe the gospel in the first place? I mean, one, one I, I'm assuming we say, well, I heard the gospel. I heard someone preaching one day or a friend shared it with me. I was reading scripture and I believed. Well, that's right. I agree. But how did you go from a person who rejected the grace of God to one who relied completely on it, especially for your salvation? Yes, you made a decision to repent and believe. But what created the faith within your heart that made you desire to do so? In other words, as the Apostle Paul says, we were dead in our sins. You were dead in your sins. Outside of Christ, you're still dead in your sins. We were dead in our sins, past tense. How did we become alive, right? How did we become alive to God? Not, not, not just thinking, oh, yeah, I mean, I'm spiritually alive. How did an affection spring up in our heart to where when we used to hate God, we became lovers of God? How did that take place? And the Bible tells us in Ephesians 2, God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, there we go, God 
made us alive. God made us alive. Who did it? God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. If there's application for us, I want to I want to just quickly mention application for the unbeliever, for the sinner. One thing, even I just I noticed this morning from Psalm 51, David saying, "My my sin is before me, my guilt, my guilt." Right? It, Jesus doesn't forgive our sins. This is the best thing about it. you. Read the Old Testament, and you're like, "All right, we're killing bulls and goats, and we're spreading the blood on the altar." But then the Hebrews in the New Testament says the blood of Jesus Christ did something that the blood of bulls and goats could never do. What was that? Cleanse the conscience. Remove the guilt. I mean, guilt is... Uh, we got kids in there? Yeah. Uh, why did I used to choose substances to suppress the guilt of who I had become? The guilt. Jesus doesn't just remove sins, he removes the guilt. That, that is what it means to, to, to come to him and receive rest for your weary soul. Come to me and I will give you rest. There isn't one solution in the entire universe that can remove our guilt completely from us than Jesus Christ. For us who do believe, I thought of three things for application. Of course, first, you know, hopefully you've come to the conclusion that, that if a person is in opposition to God, still a rebel to God, they, they will not choose to repent and believe without a divine intervention. And therefore, that should inform the way we pray. It should inform our role in sharing the gospel and on a personal and congregational note or level, it should inform the way we worship, how we pray. How should God making me alive when I was dead in my sin inform my prayer? Oh. One of our children gets a fear growing inside of them about what if this person doesn't become a believer? That's a good fear. They care about them. How should, how should the reality that God makes sinners alive who are dead inform their prayer? Lord, if they're not going to believe on account of the hardness of their heart, then on behalf of their soul... As a son or daughter of yours in Christ's name, I pray that you would remove their heart of stone. We intercede on behalf of sinners. Well, that's to be Christ-like, isn't it? Didn't Christ intercede on behalf of sinners? And so we can pray, Lord, they're not going to be convinced by my words. But they will be convinced of your words, Lord. Therefore, give them a new heart so that they believe. 
It should inform how we share the gospel. That goes, that intertwines with, with our prayer. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. What does that mean? It means that their response to the gospel is not dependent on your effort, right? Their response to the gospel is not dependent on your ability to convince them. You may be completely convinced that Christ died and rose from the dead and, and, and is sitting on the throne with the earth of his footstool, and, and that could completely just fall on deaf ears, blind eyes, and a hardened heart. Their response is solely dependent on the grace of God to remove that heart of stone and give them new life, to make them alive in Christ. And the way in which God does that is through the message of Christ and his spirit. He convinces them that Christ is greater than their sin and then calls them to repent from it. One of my favorite, uh, I took my own advice from last week on reading dead authors or whatever week that was uh, for devotions. And I was reading Confessions and man, Augustine's conversion is amazing. And I think it really hits on Something that the church has faced for the last, well, maybe for a long time, but especially 50, 60 years, and that's nominal Christianity. He doesn't say those words, but he's, he's just expressing his own conversion, his own questions to God. How come I believe the Son of God died? How come I believe the Son of God raised from the dead, rose from the dead? And yet I'm enslaved to my sin. I'm a slave. I'm not free. I know all these other men who are free. And I've smelt the sweet aroma of it, but I'm unable to taste it. I don't have the capability to taste it. He goes back and forth. He just keeps asking these questions of God, pleading his heart before God, pursuing God. With all the bombardment of these questions, he's recalling all these different men who came to faith, and then, and then he remembers one of his friends. I can't pronounce a single name that, that he says, and, and so I'm not even going to try. And, and, and he recalls in the moment that, that one time, one of his friends just turned to the scriptures and read in the Gospels, who, who, who was struggling with salvation, wasn't saved, what am I to do, Lord? And it said, sell all your possessions and follow me. And at that moment, he was saved. He, he turned from his sin, and he followed Christ for the rest of his life into eternity. And so Augustine, in somewhat frustration uh, and, and reliance upon that same, said, I'm going to do the same thing. And he turned to Romans 13, 13 and 14, and, and it said, stop your sinning. Stop your drunkenness. Stop your immorality. Stand in the presence of Christ and stop sinning. And at that moment, the Spirit called him to repent from his sin, and the joy was there. He had already, this is why it speaks of nominal Christianity. Augustine already had the head knowledge. His mother was a devout Christian. And even though he had the head knowledge, it still hadn't gotten to his heart until the word of God pierced it, called him to repent. And now we're quoting him 18, 1700 years later. It's good. It's good for the heart. God doesn't save impartial. God saves completely. 
how we worship. Lord, I was set on a course of self-destruction. I was set, my, my path was headed towards eternal torment, weeping and gnashing of teeth. As Edwards, Jonathan Edwards says, I was hanging over the pit of hell as a spider hangs on one string of a web over a fire pit. And ultimately helpless to do anything about it. And yet, in your mercy, God, you chose to rescue me. Not because I deserved it, but because you're rich in mercy and wanted to show me a glory that I have never experienced. A glory that I now know I've sinned against. A glory that I never feared until now. And now I tremble before you. And I also realize that if it, if it wasn't for your son taking my place on the cross, I'd be forsaken from the inheritance that I now share with him. Therefore, I will, I will do all things to the glory of your name, God. I will sing with joy until my praise reaches the high heavens and you are glorified. And I will be eternally grateful to the God who chose me, Father, the God who redeemed me, Son, and the God who gave me new life and completes this work in salvation, Spirit. Our worship should be Trinitarian. Now hopefully that realization informs the way that you pray, share the gospel, and your worship. So many other things that could inform, but for time's sake, we need to get to the final point. God is only pleased with us because he is pleased with Christ. The gospel is for sinners, isn't it? It's not for the righteous. Christ didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call the sick, those in need. And we all are, if we believe what Genesis 8 says, that we're all born inherently with the propensity to sin against God. None are righteous. But that means that the grace and the mercy of the gospel doesn't escape any sinner. There's no sin that can escape, that can run from the, the grace of God that he extends to anyone who comes from him. No sinner, no matter what they've done, will go to the cross in genuine faith and be rejected by God. Not one. I say by grace. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. Never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Notice this. I love it. After the flood... Noah built an altar, made a sacrifice, which means Noah's first act, at least that we read after leaving the ark, it was an act of worship. Noah was saved, and he worshiped God. And it pleased the Lord. It said it pleased the Lord. Some think Noah's making the sacrifice to atone for sin, 
It's fine. Personally, I believe Noah is, is making the sacrifice in order to decontaminate a place for him and God to have fellowship with one another. So, not going to get into Leviticus this morning because I'll just go on a rabbit trail for the next three hours. But there's a reason. Just ask me at a different time. In other words, what I'm saying, Noah wants to make an offering of thankfulness. That's what he wants. He wants to thank God for God's faithfulness and his saving grace. And the blood of the animals that Noah sacrifices is used to make the place where Noah and God are meeting. It's fit for the Lord to dwell. Read Leviticus. Where's the blood go? On the altars, on all this stuff. Rarely does it ever go on the person. That's as far as I'll go into that. In either case, we see that the Lord accepts Noah's offering. So either was it for sin, was it to decontaminate, or just something else. Either way, the Lord accepts Noah's offering. And I want to I conclude pointing out that <coughs> there's also something unique about this offering. Because it leads to God declaring that he will never execute this type of divine judgment again, at least not by a flood. We aren't given a lot of information regarding it. We just see that God's anger is satisfied, right? After Noah offers this sacrifice, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans. Noah's sacrifice satisfies God's wrath. And as a reminder, Noah was given the signs of the seasons to remind him of God's grace, right? And so as the seasons turned, Noah would experience God's promise being proved faithful over and over again. Every time the season changes, oh yeah, God said he'll never do this again. Season changes, God is faithful. Season changes, God is faithful. Season changes, God is faithful. How do I deal with snow? God is faithful. I left Florida to go to seminary in Kentucky back in January 2013. It quickly began to snow. Even like right when I was getting into Kentucky, it started to snow and dropped to temperatures I had not experienced in a long time, if ever. I couldn't even recall. I remember, I remember that first semester. I was obnoxious. And I, I, I let everybody know that I ran into how much I hated cold weather. And even if they said I like it or they liked it, I would debate them and try to persuade them that they were wrong. I honestly did not believe that you could actually like cold weather. I, I didn't believe that was true. One time, a friend said something that I, I haven't forgotten. I thought it was worthy of sharing this morning. After I went on one of my rants, he said, well, I like cold weather. I said, that's not true. And he said, the seasons... Remind us that God is faithful to keep his promises. He was referring to this passage in Genesis 8. And as much as I'm a beach bum at heart, that cut through my heart. That rebuked me. And it's always served me well to remind me that while the seasons may change, God's promises never do. That's the gospel conclusion. Something about Noah's sacrifice satisfying God's anger so that he would never judge humanity in that way. It rings a bell.
doesn't it? There's something that sounds familiar about that, where one man makes a sacrifice and it becomes a representative for humanity, a sacrifice that removes God's anger and promises life. And what we have here in Genesis 8 is this foreshadowing of a greater sacrifice. It's coming. It's in the future. It's the, it's the, it's the anticipated one. By which one man will give his life as a ransom for many. And like Noah, his sacrifice will also please the Lord. And in turn, God will remove his judgment from sinners like you and me. Ephesians 5, 2. Christ loved us. How? Offered himself as a sacrifice for us. A pleasing aroma to God. As the song says, once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Let us pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, God, um, you chose us, you redeemed us, you gave us life, and you continue to complete this work in us. And, and, and because even though we are not enslaved to sin any longer, Lord, we still have flesh that we battle with. We still wrestle with desires that are in opposition to you. But, but if we take our mind off of fleshly things and set them on heavenly and accomplish work, we're reminded that, that death has no sting. Sin will lo- has lost its power. One day it will lose its presence. We will no longer experience these things, Lord, because of what you have done. And if we just take, no matter if we believe humans are inherently good or inherently evil, we can at least say that the Bible unequivocally says that we are all sinners before you, Lord. None of us are worthy. None of us deserve your salvation. And yet, you still give it to us in love that that we would ask in the first place, why would you even allow us to sin? Maybe because you wanted to show us how merciful and gracious you are so that our love would extend greater and see that you are the greatest being in this universe and there's nothing that can captivate our attention like God. And while we see it dimly right now, one day we are going to see you in a light and we will never be distracted anymore. And we look forward to that day.